Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is a test of the Oh God What Now emergency alert service. Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now, the podcast that is now 100% blue tick free and still awaiting its government organisation gold badge. I'm Alex Andreu. On Tuesday's edition, Karate Kid gets the chop. Dominic Raab resigns, complaining of a Kafkaesque investigation. And is everything all right at home? Suella Braverman's monomaniacal approach to immigration is prompting Home Office officials to tell staff to be more empathetic. Plus, a sarcastic councillor responds to an email in Welsh by sending one back in German. Why do so many Brits have such a kartoffel chip on their spalle? about languages. Let's meet the panel. Hannah Fern is a columnist and writer at the iPaper. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Hannah, on Sunday, the hotly awaited emergency alert system test happened, and we were treated to another few hours of libertarians asserting this was tantamount to the government breaking into your bedroom, stealing all your data and punching you in the tits. An endless, how was it for you, Vox Pops? (laughs) Why the fuss? (laughs) Well, the fuss is because a load of people didn't get it. Anyone who was on three didn't seem to get it. Some people got it one minute early. Some people got it 20 minutes late. So much for a uh, brilliant emergency um, response. But Presumably, that's the point of a test. (laughs) Well, true. What I think is brilliant about this is that it's sort of a classic metaphor for this current government. There was all this preamble to it, which led to a huge amount of fuss about the policy (laughs) and why it was a terrible thing and, um, you know, wouldn't work. Then we had the policy. It didn't work. <laughs> um, it, it, it amused me so much that, that it failed for that reason. But you're right, it is a test. I don't understand this obsession with um, anything that's potentially useful being seen as, you know, the beginning of the end of time. I know. Um, it could be genuinely useful. Do I want to know that my death is impending four minutes before the nuclear apocalypse? No. But I would like to know if my house is going to flood. So... Uh, you know, it's they a probably wouldn't thing. tell you you're about to die anyway. I mean, well, they one would, hopes not. But they would only alert you if there was something useful you could do, basically. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I mean, they're they're very very widespread in most other countries. I just I don't get. They are, it. and they use them in other countries for things that we're not intending to. So they use them for things like missing children, uh, dangerous criminals who've escaped from you know um, jails and so on, to, to help. The population support the authorities. Yeah. We're not going to use it for that, by the way. So uh, why there's this um, obsession with, with, the, with it, I've no idea. Thin end of the wedge, <laughs> thin end of the wedge, Hannah. <laughs> Yasmin Sarhan writes for Time and is finally free from fasting for another year. Belated in Mubarak, Yasmin. Thank you. It's good to be back and caffeinated. British embassy officials were evacuated from Sudan over the weekend. And this has attracted some criticism from not, you know, not crazy people, as they leave behind around 4,000 British passport holders. Was there more the government could have done? Yeah, so there's, I think, roughly 30 diplomats in 
their families were extracted from the country um, in a rescue mission over the weekend, um, while the remaining 4,000 you just mentioned, British nationals, have been asked to shelter in place. And the reason the Foreign Office gives for prioritizing the people in this way is that, you know, a kind of reasonable argument that diplomats were under direct risk of attack, Mm. but that doesn't make the situation any less scary for the people who remain there. Um, You know, there are in addition to the violence, there are food shortages. Um, you know, they're, they're just being told to shelter in place. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there is this big question of, of sort of what comes next. And I think it can be quite concerning if you are a British national in Khartoum, for example, because you know that the people who are there to represent your best interest are gone. The British government is saying, no, don't worry, we're still focused on getting you out. And in the British government's defense, I think countries like the U.S. and others are still in the process of figuring out how they're going to get their nationals out as well. Mm. The whole situation, I think, is just terribly sad. And of course, it draws really scary comparisons to the botched um, withdrawal from Afghanistan. Yes, I think that's that's what got a lot of people, you know, gave them pause for thought that there were real echoes of Kabul and what happened there. And before we move on, Yasmin, just before we recorded, news broke that Tucker Carlson is no more. Um, He has left Fox News. Um, What does it mean? The nation was too stunned to speak. Um, (laughs) We don't really know what it means. I mean, in the statement that Fox News put out, they, they basically just said that Fox and Carlson had parted ways and thanked him. Um, You know, there was seemingly no warning. It didn't even appear that Tucker knew this was coming down the pike. I mean, people were looking back at his last segment and he was saying, oh, we'll see you all soon or see you next week or something. So all indications suggest that this was not something that was expected or planned, that, you know, he has another job or anything like that. Um, He's not going to be getting a final farewell episode. They basically said the one on the 21st was it, which means that, you know, he doesn't get to, you know, bid farewell to his Mm -hmm. adoring fans. Of course, this decision did come less than a week after um, the network paid, I think, $787.5 million uh, payout from a defamation lawsuit. So, you know, perhaps the network has decided that Carlson is simply too expensive. You know, we we could probably spend the whole- if there weren't some connection between those yeah. two events, right? I mean, we could spend the whole podcast going through all the incendiary and just terrible things that he said over the course um, of his career. But I think what is what we can almost count on for certain is that Carlson will land on his feet. I'm sure there are many a far right uh, network or YouTube channel or podcast even that would be very happy to have him on. So, but, you know, he's not the type of person that keeps quiet. I'm sure he'll come out and let us know. Maybe it's all a giant conspiracy. Mm. I suspect that'll be it. This is a sort of joyous news, if you're listening, government, that we do want um, delivered straight to a phone with an emergency (laughs) alert. (laughs) Finally, Jerry Scott is a political reporter for The Times. Hi, Jerry. Hello, hello. Geraldine, Diane Abbott was suspended from the Labour Party over a frankly bizarre letter to the Observer, which asserted that minorities that can present as light-skinned, like Jews or Roma, don't really suffer racism. She apologised immediately. Some, like Lord Mann, say she should stand down at the next election. Others, like Rachel Sharby, say we should step Back from this one strike and your cancelled environment, um, what do you think? 
Yes, well, I thought I was in trouble as well as Diane then because you full named me. Only my mother <laughs> ever named me when I'm, I'm in serious trouble. Um, but look, I think Rachel is correct. We do need to step back from a one strike and you're cancelled environment. But this isn't the environment that we're in. Um, you know, Labour has had massive problems of anti-Semitism. Um, Diane Abbott, frankly, should know better. And it's... It's a real shame, I think, is a stain on a career which has been built on fighting racism, right? You can't deny, and no one should, Diane Abbott's massive achievements in in fighting racism throughout her career. But it seems to be on the Labour left, there is still this blind spot where they cannot seem to equate anti-Semitism with, with the same kind of racism as they think is worthy about fighting. I mean, it's it's pretty clear where Keir Starmer is on this just today. He has outrightly described it as being anti-Semitic, which I think is the first time he has described one of these incidents in quite such stark language. Um, the party was really quick to um, suspend the whip. I very much doubt she'll now get it back. Um, some in Labour were speaking to me over the weekend and saying, you know, it was just last week that she was accusing members of the shadow cabinet of um, you know, presiding over racist adverts in terms of those attack ads that we saw on Twitter. Um, and, you know, I would not so secretly say that some on the right of the party might be quite glad that they've had an excuse. Um, but, you know, like I say, it's a massive shame because Diana's done so much for the movement. Um, and it would be it would be just a massive tragedy if this is this is how she goes. Before out. we start a date for your diaries, the next Oh God What Now Live is happening in London on Wednesday, 24th of May at the Leicester Square Theatre. I'll be on the panel with show favourites Arthur Snell and making her live debut, Marie Leconte. And we'll all be kept in line by firm but fair Ros Taylor. Tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Patreon people get a discount, of course. Just check your inboxes. It's the other side of the local elections, so who knows what we'll be talking about, but it's guaranteed to be a lot of fun. So come along. We'd love to see you. As Gregor Samza awoke one morning from uneasy dreams... He found himself transformed in his bed into a gigantic asshole. Former Justice Secretary Dominic Raab <laughs> has labelled the investigation into his conduct Kafkaesque. No tomato was safe in Whitehall last week as the report by Adam Tolly KC landed with a thud on Number 10's doormat. Rishi Sunak thanked Rab for his time in government, reminding us all that for a few terrifying days in 2020, as Boris Johnson's health was on the cusp, a man who didn't know where France is could have become prime minister. Hannah, the spectator's Isabel Hardman is claiming that Sunak didn't actually tell Rab to resign. Do you buy that? And if it's true, what stopped Rab from just hanging on? I do buy it, but I don't think it actually matters either way whether he was pushed or he chose to go because of his previous promise. The tomato incident, by the way, makes me laugh like a drain <laughs> because I have worked with somebody who the vibes of that was so reminiscent of that particular boss that I just, I know what it's like to work for someone like that and my thoughts are with those civil servants right now. And it's such an accurate description of the kind of um, sort of physical intimidation that people like that practice. Um, yeah, there's no doubt that this report clearly 
absolutely um, nailed him, who he is. Although their report did not uh, say the tomato incident was proven. True. Right. True. Um, but uh, I think whether he went on or he, he, by his own choice or whether he was pushed, um, he had to go because of the environment that, that the, the government is in running up to a general election next year. Um, and he, you know, this report did essentially echo exactly what claimants had had said about his behaviour. So he couldn't wriggle out of it anymore. So then we see this letter, the tone of which, uh, the belligerence of which suggests that he will never see what he does as bullying. Mm. A classic thing where the bully does not recognise their bullying, which is why they constantly say they are not a bully. Um, He will never believe uh, that that he did anything wrong, uh, and he's stepping down for the good of his party only. Um, and whether or not uh, he was told to do it almost doesn't matter. What we see is a complete blind spot about acceptable behaviour, um, you know, and in a place of such importance as the the rooms in which the decisions are made that, that affect every single one of us. It makes me so angry. I think people can probably hear. I'm sort of still seething about this. As a former civil servant, I will say that there are some ministers who take the servant element a little bit too literally Mm. and have the attitude that I'm elected, you're not. Well, that was the exact tone of his resignation letter. Exactly that. I mean, you know, that letter, if, if... if anything could convince people that he was exactly the sort of person that they were complaining about, petty, vindictive, quick to anger, that letter was QED, right? Um, What does the episode say about Sunak's leadership? There was a, a, a book about the sort of pandemic times landed last week, and it contains a bit where it says that when Rob had to step up as Deputy Prime Minister, because Johnson was in hospital, a circular went out warning people about his aggressive manner. Fantastic. Um, And so this was not some secret, right? No. Everyone I know that works in Whitehall knew about it. Oh, yes. I've had messages from people who worked in So why did it take months and why did Sunak, in the end, not make a decision? Well, it was evident what was going to happen throughout and so all it does is uh, is highlight his weaknesses uh, which are that he is weak of character that you can't come to a decision early that he is short of allies so one of the reasons presumably Mm. he didn't take decisive action is that he doesn't have a lot of alternatives to step into that role where he really needs you know um uh, completely dedicated um support um uh, and, and there's no heft in the cabinet either. There's nobody with the kind of um, the strength and the ideas to really provide that second in command. So all of those reasons come together to just make him look deeply weak. The reason that he he can't take those um, swift decisions is because he d- he's lacking in in options. Mm. Jerry, um, the rumours were that since Deputy PM and Justice Secretary did not need to go to the same person, this was a good opportunity for Sunak to address the awful gender imbalance in his cabinet, which is, I think, only a quarter um, women. All the names being circulated as possible replacements were women but one, I think. But in the end, nope. Two more Oxbridge chaps. Um, uh, Oliver Dowden is now Deputy Prime Minister. Is he an improvement on Rob or Shudder Therese Coffey? 
<laughs> you are right that all the names being circulated were women apart from one, and that one, Alex Chalk. Um, so, look, I think the the guesses were spot on, just not really in the way that we expected them to be. That's a journalist get-out answer, isn't it? And it's a, believe me, we knew what we were talking about, really. Um, but look, is he an improvement? I think it's difficult to know whether he is an improvement, but I think we do know that he is seen as Rishi Sunak's fixer. They're really close allies. They wrote together him, Rishi and Robert Jenrick, who we'll come on to in a minute, I'm sure, um, when we get to the home office. I was um, surprised he wasn't promoted, actually, that, you know, because if you're going to go for a bloke, then I was I was quite surprised that Jenrick wasn't promoted because it seems to me that anyway. Me too. And well, look, on paper, you would think that he might be he he you know is he's got all the all the qualifications um he has a good record during the pandemic yada yada yada. but i think in real terms jenrick already kind of has a cabinet job um you know i know he's only a minister but i think you see him stepping in for quite a lot of the um big hefty home office stuff Bra- braverman's um, mind is not well, really a cabinet job jerry oh <laughs> uh, i think it takes up about, about as much time um but look it, Oliver Dowden is Rishi Sunak's representative on Earth, so I can see why <laughs> he would be given the job. Um, he'll be his connection with MPs. He's got that chance of Judge Lancaster role already in the Cabinet Office, overseeing everything. It makes sense for him to have um, the, the Deputy PM job. But there was a question over whether they would even give someone that job because, of course, it isn't a constitutional role. No one has to have it. Um, there was a, a kind of doubt from number 10 on that morning after Dominic Raab had resigned, whether they even would appoint a new deputy PM. So who knows if um, if Oliver Dowden or Olive, as he's um, fondly known in Whitehall, went in and said, I want the job, or whether Rishi decided he needed someone. I'm not sure. Mm. Um, justice went to Alex Chalk, as you said. What do we know about him? Well, he's quite an interesting guy, really. I mean, he's been described as a rising star, as one to watch in Parliament, one of Parliament's nice guys. And look, don't take that from me. That's all on his own website. That is how he describes <laughs> <laughs> uh, Modest, so, too. <laughs> yeah, and so humble. Um, but look, he is he is well thought of. He is a, um, he is, he is a barrister. Um, and he's worked on quite a few high-profile campaigns. He says he's not a career politician. Um, he worked on a private member's bill to raise the sense for stalking from five to ten years, which did eventually happen. So he does have the credentials here. I think, what, as ever with these things, the proof will be in the pudding, right? And I was speaking to um, a barrister friend, which makes me sound like a horrible member of the liberal, uh, liberal metropolitan elite. But I was speaking to a, a North London barrister friend just the other day who said, you know, the proof will be whether he advocate advocates for the profession in the same way that some other ministers do for their professions. So, you know, whether it's about and say what you want about Jeremy Hunt, many people do. I think few could argue that he really cared about patient safety in the NHS. If Alex Chalk ends up really advocating for the justice system, then that will be a win. Mm. What's going to happen next with Rob's pet project, do you think, uh, the the creation of a UK Bill of Rights uh, to replace the Human Rights Act and, and some antipathy to the ACHR rolled up in that? Yes, well, again, um, come back to me in a few weeks when I've got this completely wrong, but I think it's dead in the water, to be honest. Um, it 
isn't overly popular with uh, kind of the more uh, wet Tories, as you might call them. It was really was his baby. It was killed off and then bought back when he came back. So I would be surprised if we see it go on. We haven't heard um, definite confirmation either way yet. But I, I honestly don't see a, with a government that has what, 18 months max to a general election, realistically, depending on if you think it'll be May or October next year. And by the way, my money is on October. I don't think that's really what they're going to be want to be focusing on as we get towards that election. It, it might go the way of the retained EU law bill um, when Jacob Rees-Mogg was ousted in a sort of permanent gutterdammerung um, of not being scheduled for the next stage. That and the consultation on imperial measurements. Where's that from? That's a question I've been asking this week. Still there in the ether. Um, <laughs> Yasmin, Raab wrote the most ill-tempered, ungraceful resignation letter that I have read in a long time and followed it with an equally bizarre diatribe in the Telegraph complaining that the, the threshold for bullying was set so low that ministers were now vulnerable to, and I quote, activist civil servants. Is not behaving like a douchebag really about to become a culture war issue? Yeah, apparently so. I mean, there was a shocking lack of contrition in the letter. I mean, there, there was one sentence in particular. Um, I'm genuinely sorry for any unintended stress or offense that any officials felt as a result of the pace standards and challenge that I brought to the ministry. <laughs> Essentially saying, I'm sorry if you felt that way. I'm which of sorry course, I'm you know, so, yeah. so quick. And... I'm sorry if I'm so good at my job that it made you feel bad. Yeah, it was basically he's sort of framed this whole sort of media circuit as though like he was the one who was bullied out of his job um, and not the other way around. And implicit in his argument really is that being intimidated, intimidating, um, aggressive or rude in the workplace setting are necessary to conduct good government. Mm. Um, and, and we know that, of course, that that's ridiculous. Um, and, you know, even if we gave credence to Rob's claim that, you know, there was a cabal of activist civil servant snowflakes or whatever who conspired against him, you know, one can surmise that the way to avoid being targeted in such a way would be to be a good minister, a good, a good boss, a, mm. a good, <laughs> a good manager, um, and and what we know from from the outcome of the report is that even if he wasn't hurling tomatoes at people, um, that that he wasn't that that you know putting one's hand yeah, that yeah. close up to someone's face to effectively shut them up is is frankly just a rude modus operandi. So yeah, I just I it, it was really interesting to see the tone which you know. <laughs> did not sound like anything even even close to regret that it had come to that level. No. Um, to play devil's advocate, Jacob Rees-Mogg suggested on Sky News that, and I quote, you can't intimidate an ambassador, and if you can, they're no good, calling one of the victims a wet wipe. Does he have a point, do you think? Should these high-ranking officials be made of sterner stuff? Yeah, I mean, he, what he's saying, right, is exactly that, that, you know, then perhaps people who work in government have to have a thick skin to hack it. Um, but but it's hard to imagine that you're going to have the best and brightest come, you know, lining up for a job in government if the expectation is that, you know, they're going to be treated in a poor way whilst having the responsibility, as you were saying, of, of making these big decisions. Um, I, I don't I can't imagine they get paid enough for that. Right wing media proxies made a lot of well, the report found no evidence that he shouted or threw stuff. Has this affair revealed how little many people understand 
the nature of workplace bullying, that it can be a very smiley, a very insidious thing where someone simply, let's say, gives you trouble every time you make a request for a holiday and, you know, questions your dates or always underrates your performance or, you know, it, it can take many forms. And I think it also kind of conveys a willingness to overlook the treatment that people perhaps on lower rungs of the totem pole, not mm. the minister mm. level, that, you know, if, if they're at that position, as you say, they have this honor of working in government, that they kind of just need to, you know, suck it up um, or, or take it on the chin. Mm. I, I think there's – it definitely betrays a lack of empathy. But I think it also betrays, as you were saying earlier, this desire to really just make everything about the culture war um, and, and to find someone to blame. Hannah, according to research from the universities of Sheffield and Westminster, the cost of conflict in the workplace is over £28 billion a year, or £1,000 for every person of working age in the UK. In the NHS alone, it's thought that bullying and harassment costs over £2 billion. That's, that's literally what a raise would, yep. would cost for junior doctors, right? Rob thinks the thre- threshold for bullying is too low. Do the economics agree or is it too high, actually? No, it's the other way around. So uh, it, it's, it, what this shows is if you think about what they, that figure contains, um, the, the economic cost, they calculate this by looking at things like absences from work due to feeling, you know, you can't mental cope with it, mental issues. health, resignation and hiring costs associated mm-hmm. with people losing people out of their jobs. Um, but it doesn't ca- capture uh, the personal costs, the, the long-term mental health costs of being a victim of this kind of um, aggressive, intimidatory behaviour. It doesn't capture long-standing economic inactivity that can mm. ca- happen when people completely lose their self-confidence as a result of working for a, an awful boss who undermines their belief in their own abilities. It doesn't capture the potential lost costs of careers faltering over decades as a result of being bullied. So I would say that figure is an underestimate and it suggests that, in fact, we should take bullying far more seriously. And too many people will agree with what Rob wrote in The Telegraph. Too many people believe that, you know, we're a nation of snowflakes who can't cope with things. In fact, the opposite is true, that people are finally learning to or feeling comfortable that they can stand up to this kind of yeah. behaviour. And it's something that I think we should uh, really be happy about. And often they are the same people who shat themselves over receiving a message on their phone and <laughs> wearing a cloth mask. Um, they're the tough ones. Yasmin, uh, could Rob now become another backbencher with a vendetta against Sunak? Or is he basically, how do I put this delicately, is he too thick to be a real threat? I don't think so. I mean, Hardman's sort of um, what we were talking about before, saying that Sunak not firing him notwithstanding. Um, I think, you know, you didn't get really a sense that there was much animosity looking at Sunak's letter. I mean, more than half of it was dedicated to singing Rob's praises, going back through all of his contributions. So I think and also, you know, an election is so soon that it, it would seem almost foolish for for more to more of them to kind of t- turn against themselves but you know who knows there's yeah and he's in and a he's in a marginal seat actually yeah it wasn't marginal he made it marginal <laughs> it should be emphasized it was actually a very safe seat but over the last three elections rob has managed to make it marginal on which jerry 
Um, I understand you spent some time in Raab's constituency over the weekend, and I could not end this section without asking about a particularly delicious piece of gossip relating to neighbourhood WhatsApp groups. Tell all. <laughs> yes, I love these visits, and uh, I always put my hand up when they say, who wants to go out and speak to speak to normal people frankly because it's not what I do a lot of my life um and and get the um get the feeling on the ground so I went out to um Isha which is Dominic Raab's constituency um look I I must admit I didn't get the feeling on the ground that people thought that he was um thick and I mean like you know objectively he's not he went to Oxford and Cambridge very successful in Tolly's report he says he's a highly intelligent man what I think he lacks is emotional intelligence. He has absolutely no kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, um, perception of how to deal with people by the sounds of it. And that came through in his constituency. And maybe that is why this WhatsApp group uh, debacle has has um, kind of come up. And what this is, is that his neighbours, apparently, a constituent tells me, have um, two separate WhatsApp groups. And, you know, this is this is stuff that... Uh, we all have them, don't we? Your neighbours say, oh, well, the bin's going out tonight when it's been a, a, you know, a bank holiday or who is shouting or shut that dog up or whatever it is that your neighbours um, chat about. This one, um, the neighbours have one with Dominic Raab in it and one excluded. <laughs> um apparently because they don't want to um, let him in on, I don't know, all of their all of their moans and groans. Um, so, no, look, I had a, I had a really lovely time <laughs> in Surrey. But you're right about that majority. I mean, the Lib Dems cut it by um, from 23,000 to 2,000 at the last election. I really think that the Conservatives, whether it's Dominic Raab who goes for that seat or not, because to be clear, he has not confirmed that he will, um, but whether it's him or the Tories, I think they're really in trouble there. In a big win for the darkest, furthest, Francoisest right of the Tory party, Suella Braverman looks set to gain the power to disregard the European Court of Human Rights. This will help her finally begin the process of deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda, or so the story goes. It might also help the Council of Europe finally eject great bigot islands from its structures. Meanwhile, at the Home Office itself, they're trying to cultivate a much more smiley image. New training documents encourage civil servants to put a face to the case and treat claimants with more empathy, referring to refugees as customers. Congratulations, you are our 1,000th asylum seeker. You have won a free case of diphtheria. Yasmin, Calling applicants customers implies there's a thriving free market of immigration processing out there. In reality, the Home Office is a monopoly in most respects. Does this clumsy attempt at humanizing claimants actually only serve to belittle them even more? Oh, absolutely. I think also just as someone who who has been a, a quote unquote customer of the home offices before, um, it just reminds me of how much money I've spent. <laughs> to be here. I'm very happy to be here. Please don't send me away. Um, but yeah, I, I think it does. And, and I think, I mean, to your point, this isn't ASDA. You know, it's not like yeah. there are other options. Um, and, and I think it also is is such an odd way of framing, I think, particularly for asylum seekers who are coming to Britain because of perilous situations where they come from. To make it sound, to liken it to a, a shopping excursion, 
you know, I don't see how that's particularly humanizing, you know, whether these are real people with, mm. with real, you know, and, and even if, you know, anyone who's been, I'm, I'm sure Alex, you probably also have experience with this, anyone who's, who's been in the sort of bureaucracy that even involves just things like everyday visas, that's an incredibly stressful thing that involves a lot of personal information and a lot of time and often, again, a lot of money. Um, and just astonishing um, delay and incompetence. Exactly. Like, you know, you, you send... All your original documents in by recorded mail, and then you don't even get a, a some sort of acknowledgement that they've arrived, and then they put them in a second class envelope, not recorded or anything, and just send them back to you. And you kind of cross your fingers and hope your passports get your passport gets back to you. Yeah, it's here's just your BRP. Don't lose it. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> It's yeah, I I find it very bizarre. It's just so fucking superficial, you know, to to be cultivating a culture of constantly demonizing immigrants, of mm. calling calling asylum seekers illegals, of of going, you know, they're all criminals, of of all of that stuff, but somehow thinking that if you call them customers, I mean, that this, makes it all right. This is a bit of an aside from the immigration thing, but that trend to call people customers when they are patently not is something that is happening everywhere. Housing associations and local authorities housing people in social housing who have literally no other choice. They're often coming from Mm. homelessness Mm. into social housing are called customers. They're clearly not. They're clearly tenants. There's nothing wrong with the word tenant. I hate this kind of politicization of language. Yeah, absolutely. But the idea that they're customers is to give them this sense that they have um, a kind of autonomy that they simply don't. Mm. Uh, And then for them to feel their frustration when they can't exercise that freedom because they don't have the freedom. It's it's Orwellian and it's um, infuriating. I I mean, the training course civil servants are doing takes 55 minutes um, and lawyers on the front line aren't reporting any significant culture change, isn't it going to take more than a quiz you can do over your lunch break to really turn around the culture? Oh, of course. I mean, the, the type of change, you know, if you're trying to instill a greater culture of compassion, more fundamentally, that needs to start at the top. That, yeah. that doesn't start in, in your inbox. And, you know, when you have a home secretary who, who likens asylum seekers coming via very dangerous boat crossings as as an invasion. Um, you know, that's not compassionate language. That's not the the sort of language that that, you know, gives the home office the sense of we are dealing yeah. with, with human people. And you know, it's also kind of sad that as part of this training, they need to be reminded that, you know, there's a human human being sitting behind every case file. I mean, you have all of their information, like some of the most sensitive, like, you know, details of their lives. But yeah, I mean, I think that sort of cultural change really does need to start at the top. And it needs to start first and foremost, I think, with the way that governments also talk about these people um, before it can it can reach down to. Mm. Needs to start with a change of government, I think. (laughs) Hannah, Braverman is still caught up in the row about her allegations and the racial nature of Mm. grooming gangs, all of that. Rishi Sunak already distanced himself from that. She admitted that she considered a bizarre defense posing as Margaret from Fairham on a radio phone-in to talk up her own policies. I mean, if you need to astroturf your own policies, or they can be undone by a football pundit's tweet, isn't it time to go back to the drawing board on your fucking policies? You would think so, wouldn't you? I mean, the idea that you pose as a phone-in person, what are we aiming for? A a policy drawn by 
phone-in pundits, possibly the least, you know, well uh, briefed individuals around any policy on earth. It's a bizarre defence. <laughs> she also wrote a piece in which she talks about... Well, fake, sorry, fake callers. Even worse. <laughs> All right. I mean, Not I even understand. real callers, like a caller you had to make up to support. Because <laughs> nobody is. Yes. It's calling on those base instincts that she thinks constituents hold, but often are found not to do. She uh, wrote a piece defending her position, claiming that what she is uh, describing is the unfashionable facts about, um, you know, the issues around grooming gangs and so on. It's not that the facts are unfashionable, it's the racism that she's putting on top of it, arguably, Mm. that is the unfashionable issue. The facts, in fact, are something quite different. The Home Office's own evidence shows that actually most Grooming gangs are very diverse in their makeup, and also that uh, the majority of um, group child sex offences are carried out by white British men under 30. So, you know, that the evidence shows the opposite. I don't know what quite she's playing at apart from politicking, that the policies that are behind this are not particularly substantial. One of them is around mandatory reporting of um, child sex abuse, where it's uh, either confirmed or suspected uh, and another is around um, data gathering which both of those things are important I'm not disputing that they might be useful steps um, but they don't do anything around prevention of, of child sex abuse so what's all this about if not I, uh, it, it's astonishing listen I'm of the school of thought uh, uh, of Ian Dunton this who says that basically They've been in power for 13 years. They now find themselves 12 to 18 months from an election. And they know that none of this stuff can be sorted out before Mm. the election. The NHS, immigration, none of this stuff can be sorted out. So all they have left is the presentation (laughs) of, you know, the the idea of policies rather than actual policies. But the worst thing about it is that this is representing what they think the people want yes what they think we want what they think we think about others and it's not what british people think about others and that's so that's the worst thing about it so sky news reported last month that some asylum seekers are cancelling their claims and going underground to avoid the risk of being deported Mm. so that means even if their claims are legitimate they sort of drop outside the system they won't pay tax they won't be you know they make themselves vulnerable to exploitation all of that stuff so could this policy be not just a a, a gigantic waste of money, as we thought, but actually have the opposite effect. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not just a massive waste of money, but a waste of talent as well. And um, the general uh, kind of calculations done by academics on what um, we're losing uh, in terms of the uh, the policies that exist at the moment is about five billion in tax that we could be getting Mm. from um, asylum seekers working. You know, Asylum seekers already have no right to work. So then you, if you drive them underground on top of that because they don't want to be, they, they fear de- deportation, you end up with a whole host of other extremely expensive problems. So you've got things like rising crime because people need to eat, they need money, um, poor housing, hidden poor housing, illness that goes untreated. And pe- people go on having relationships and lives. They will have sex. They will have children. Then you've mm. got children who are not properly registered at, at birth. Um the it's not just dangerous, it's kind of um, morally corrupt as well to allow this kind of thing to happen. I, to, to, to know your 
forcing people to live on the margins of society, um, I think, is a, a morally bankrupt uh, policy. I agree. Jerry, what do we know about her ministerial colleagues at the Home Office? Because there are a lot of slightly more junior ministers that, that, that work in her department. Chris Philp has sort of failed sideways from Treasury under Liz Trust to Crime Policing and Fire with um, second home merchant Robert Jenrick in charge of immigration. Are they doing any of the real work or is the entire department just focused on headlines? Yeah, so look, I think it is a lot of headline grabbing. I, I don't think you can deny that. I slightly disagree on on the point that people don't care about this i think they care but they don't they don't they're not the, the way that we're going about this isn't popular so there was there was some polling a couple of months ago now saying that the stop the boats thing was now the second biggest concern among tory voters right and i know we're talking about tory voters as a subset, subset there but that comes above cutting nhs surgery waiting lists and accident accident emergency um wait time so People do care about immigration. What they don't have any faith in is that this government is going to do anything about it that is sustainable or actually works. Um, And we've seen that with there being no flights to Rwanda um, taking off. Um, You look at the crime rates, which are through the roof. You know, I've spoken on this podcast before about the fact that if your phone gets nicked, even if you can see it on a tracker, the police won't even go around and try and find it. So... I think it is a lot of headline grabbing and not very much actual real work being done. And that's because, as you say, the mountain to climb is so big. I mean, our brilliant, brilliant friends at Politico, for example, this afternoon, and it's a different department, but it's the Ministry of Justice. And they asked um, they asked number 10 to kind of give them some examples of what Dominic Raab had done in his time in office. And what they came back and said is, says, oh, he last month, he reduced the um, backlog in Crown Court cases by 500, which is all very well. But the backlog is about 60,000. And I think it's you see it across different government departments that they are, they just can't get anything done. Nothing seems to be able to get through. You see it in the Foreign Office as well. You know, we're talking about Sudan at the start. The same diplomat who the Times has revealed this afternoon was on holiday there, was also involved in Kabul. He was the ambassador there, as deputy ambassador there as well. So it just feels like it's a zombie government that can't get anything done. I think we see that in the Home Office as much as any other department. Tom Tugendhat is an interesting case, right? Because it was hoped, I think, he would be a more compassionate one-nation voice in the mix. And the opposite seems to have happened. He's been swallowed up by the sort of bigot machine, and he's now defending indefensible bills at ease with international law-breaking and using the language of crackdowns. And it just, it prompts me to ask, is the Tory party just simply too far down the road to salvage? I think yes, and I think it's difficult for someone like Tom Tuganart, who was such a um, campaigning voice on the outside of government. You know, when he was the um, Foreign Affairs Committee chair you'd see him butting up against the government quite often on whether it was um you know china or or on the afghanistan evacuation actually that we were just talking about and i think you know it's a age-old strategy bring your biggest critics into the fold so they have to abide by ministerial collective responsibility and essentially shut up i don't know if that is what has happened to tom tugenhart but he's definitely not around as much anymore and it does feel in westminster to me and a Tory strategist said this to me the other day everyone just seems to have gone home for the year you know they've looked at their diaries for the rest of the year and thought nah can't be asked with this 
um, let's not do anything. Let's just try and keep it going until until we next go to the polls. And I think that's that's pretty much the the feeling in Parliament at the moment. In a recent post by uh, the Department of Work and Pensions, Tom Persglove had an interesting way of explaining how the government wants to crack down on benefit fraud. Uh, At the DWP, we have a very particular set of skills. We will track you down, we will find you, and we will bring you to justice. These are the the famous words from Taken. And uh, there's another example. Uh, Sunak, during the last PMQs, was gloating about how the government is building 20,000 new prison places. Um, A salute to Ian Dunt here, who makes a good case that round numbers are almost always fake. Whenever you you hear someone say 20,000, they have done no evidence-based work (laughs) in the background. But isn't that a weird boast, right? Surely the success of government policies on crime would manifest as needing fewer prison places. Why are we seeing this shift to state against people? My, I, I was trying to find that that DWP that video. Um, it was taken down, so clearly, I oh, right. suspect so, the reaction was such. Um, but I, I read a description of it. Apparently, he was wearing like a, a bulletproof vest mm. and like going with anyway. Um, I, I mean, I always read those things as like, especially those like over theatrical things, um, as the government really being seen, wanting to be seen to be doing something. Um, and and in in that particular case, that thing seems to be sort of trying to villainize people who are on benefits mm. as though the, they're the the real big cost bur- burden to the state as opposed to, say, like tax fraud. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was kind of my reading on it. But or the, I mean, it, it, an increasing number of voices are now saying the Home Office's dysfunction is basically structural. Does anyone have any ideas about how it might be broken up in a way that makes an actual difference? It's difficult, isn't it? Because all these things come under what you would traditionally have as a as a home office banner i think there is there's definitely um scope and i think merit in the argument of splitting immigration out because it is such a massive issue i don't i i just don't know how you can expect one secretary of state to have a grasp on these giant issues that are facing our country whether it's crime whether it's policing you know the the horrible horrible scandals that we're seeing in our policing at the moment that need to be rooted out from the core as well and immigration you know and all the other things that come with keeping the country safe whether it's counter-terrorism and things like that it's a massive brief um and I'm, I'm surprised really that it all still sits under under one portfolio especially especially when you have a secretary of state like Suella Braverman who and that you know she would say this herself is one part of the party and is very, very focused on one particular area. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty impossible. Yeah, maybe that's the secret to Jenrick not getting a promotion. Maybe next reshuffle, a new department will be created on immigration as part of Sunak saying, look, we're taking this very seriously. Maybe, maybe that's so. the general... Maybe so, but who wants the immigration department? And one of the arguments, mm. if you're in government, for keeping them together is that uh, nobody's going to want to take on the utter shitstorm that is the the immigration brief because there's no way especially in a year or just over a year you can have any form of success on that finally this week our new regular segment about councillors doing stupid bigoted stuff and this week the story is a melting pot of all our favorite things frustratingly british bureaucracy our continued inability to reach out to our multilingual friends on the continent and a bit of welsh flag waving for producer alex a councillor in Gwyneth 
has been suspended for responding to emails sent to her in Welsh by writing back in German instead. She contends that it was meant to be a light-hearted joke about her lack of understanding of the Welsh language. Unfortunately for her, the recipient was the head of the local Welsh language advocacy group. Achavi! Jerry, Britain has the lowest rate of second language speakers in Europe, but English is the most popular second language on the continent. Does this popularity simply condemn us to complacency, basically? I think it makes us really lazy. And look, I say this as someone who has a very, very minimal grasp of Spanish as a second language, but my dad used to live in Fuengarola, right, on the Costa del Sol, proper Brits, you know, second home Brexit gammony country. I actually once wrote a piece for the New European based there on what the... What the I think you'll find it's called Hamony. Down there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on, uh, on, on what um, British expats thought there. But I tried to go over to practice my Spanish and every time when we hear it over and over again, I try and practice my Spanish. The brilliant Spanish people who obviously spoke excellent English would just reply to me in English. Very, very embarrassing. Um, but look, I find this Welsh story very, very funny. My my boyfriend, Ollie, is Welsh, speaks Welsh, uh, was taught it at school. It has highlighted me many, many funny um, examples where this has happened. For example, where uh, people who don't speak Welsh have emailed the translation department to say, can you uh, put this English into Welsh for me for this sign? They've got an auto out of office reply in Welsh from the person <laughs> is the translator. I know. And then so you get signs saying, you know, one thing in English, in right, whether it's like, you know, pedestrians look right or something. And then uh, the Welsh says, I'm sorry, I'm out of the office. Please send your translation to oh, whoever. <laughs> and I understand they even got that uh, that uh, alert test wrong in Welsh. It ended up advising people something really bizarre. Yes. I mean, I'm not going to go through all the examples that I was uh, regaled with the other night when I told Ollie that we'd be talking about this. But there was... There was another one where cyclists, um, were, it was a cyclist dismount and what actually came up was overthrowing cystitis. <laughs> <laughs> we really oh could do a whole, a whole um, segment on this. But look, I, I, in all seriousness, I do think it speaks to the fact that we are lazy as a country with teaching second languages. It should be done much earlier. It's part of the problem, Jerry, that the languages which are now arguably the most useful, Chinese, Japanese, Hindi, Arabic, are also the hardest for Europeans to learn. No, I don't think that's the problem, actually. I think that you ju- it's all about teaching children these languages young. I mean, if we, children are little sponges, right? Even if we're talking about languages that are, quote unquote, harder to learn, teach them young and children will pick them up and have a have a love for them i mean i am consistently angry at my rubbish comprehensive school education that we didn't start doing any languages until i was what in year eight so how old are you there 12 mm. that's fine. Uh, that really is too same nice. i think we have exactly the same rubbish uh state school spanish yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah, same. And what do we do it from twelve to sixteen? And then if you choose not to take it any further, that's the end of it. That I'm in exactly the same position. I can probably, you know, order a sandwich and a beer and ask for the, you know, directions to the swimming pool in Spanish. But that's all I have left. Yes, I mean, looking at places like Belgium or Switzerland, mm. um, they they raise mul- multilingual kids, right? It just happens automatically, and all research points to bilingual or multilingual people having 
healthier, more plastic, more flexible brains. Um, why don't Brits make more of their native diversity of language, just teaching Welsh or Gaelic or even British Sign Language in schools from an early age? If they don't want to do the whole foreign language thing, why not teach the 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 languages of the British Isles more from a from a young age? Such a bold question. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's it, you, when you look at those countries, Belgium and Switzerland. I mean, these are countries that I, I think, on the one hand, they they all those like Switzerland, for example, um, you know, German, um, Italian, French. These are all official languages, yeah. so they're kind of all on an equal footing. So I think these are countries that really do prize the diversity of the languages that they have, and, and there's really, I think, really instilled. Um, these are languages. I mean, it just makes more sense, for, especially in a small country like that, for everyone to have some ability to to, to kind of work mm. and communicate in those languages. And and the fact in it's especially striking with the UK when you take into account a city like London, where hundreds of languages are spoken. Um, of course, there's a significant immigrant population, so you know a lot of households where people grow up um, with with multiple languages. But there doesn't really seem to be again sort of a top down sort of encouragement really of of really you know learning more languages beyond say like you know your year whatever german yeah. um i think um you know and, and and perhaps it is a hard sell to to encourage brits to take on welsh or gaelic because again you know these are perhaps more regional languages um than it is to say but you know you have france and spain where the, those languages are spoken the world over in many many countries just across not very far away and, and anyway that's not the point learning another language it does weird things to your brain it opens up sort of slightly different mathematical ways of thinking about language construction yeah. in in its totality. Oh, 100%. I mean, you, one could argue that it's kind of easier than ever to learn new languages now. Like, I'm talking as someone who grew up kind of understanding Arabic, but being very poor at speaking, had to study it at university, and also learning French via school. Mm. But, you know, I keep up those languages primarily by like apps like Duolingo. This podcast is not yeah. sponsored. But but also, I mean, you know, Netflix, you can throw on a show. I like watch... Yes, all the streaming sites. It's now quite not normal to watch things with uh, a different language might that might that create a generation of toddlers that are now growing up and their ear is kind of used to different languages potentially i think i think even you know even with people who are slightly older i think as there's more increased popularity in shows from other countries. And we're seeing this on, on platforms like Netflix, too. Mm. You're naturally, especially if you don't want to watch terrible dubbed versions, you're naturally going to find yourself picking up mm. um, the language. You know, <laughs> I I basically attribute the, the fact that my boyfriend knows several phrases in Arabic, partially to me, but also partially to the fact that we'll often watch Arabic speaking programs yeah. on Netflix and he'll just pick them up. Granted, none of them are particularly useful words, but you know, he's, <laughs> um, yeah, I, th I think it could very much change the game. Hannah, is there a bit of exceptionalism and a sort of imperial mindset hiding in that resistance to foreign languages, right-wing politicians often express discomfort at hearing people speak other languages in public. I think there's two things going on. I think, yes, there is a kind of exceptionalism and imperialism, but it's built in not necessarily to you know individuals and how they feel about language, but it's built into the education system in the mm. way that we've described. So we don't have the structures to expose uh, toddler, you know, toddlers, 
preschoolers, people in their very early years of school to multiple languages in the classroom. And that is where it makes the most difference. That's where it, it you know, creates the brain structure in a different way, exactly as you've described. And I am happy to um, confess, even though I'm, it's embarrassing, that I really struggle with languages. And I feel like it's a huge failing that, you know, as an educated person with a master's level degree and, a, you know, a career in journalism, that I just don't have any language except English, which communicates with other people. Um, and I, I, I suppose my concern is that with tools like AI and so on, that it'll become easier for people who don't have that childhood experience of other language to just rely on technology rather than actually, you know, use those those human skills, those communication skills. And so I think our education system needs to be looked at. But when you mentioned there that, that whole thing about politicians talking about their discomfort, I think that's about something else entirely. Mm. I think that is about... Um, this kind of setting up the metropolitan liberal elite who love to live in a diverse city and like to hear that there's a lot going on in their city, loads of different languages, loads of different cultures and foods against ordinary people living in towns where you only hear English spoken. I think that's a purely politically motivated sentiment that I, that is, is really base and problematic and doesn't actually reflect how people feel about language spoken i think it's i don't think people share that sentiment i think that that's the kind of thing that farageists say mm. to try and provoke a response good news your favorite history nerds are back yes we at we are history have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops well I have, John. You mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. It's nearly the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. What are the things that have been distracting our panel this week as our blue ticks uh, blink on and off over the weekend? Uh, Let's start with Hannah. So I have watched for the first time a quite old documentary from 2016 on Netflix uh, called The First Monday in May, which is about the Met Gala and the uh, whole process behind putting together that event, you know, the, the fashion industry, the, the Vogue staff who who handle it, but also behind the scenes in the Met about the exhibition that the Met Gala promotes, so the, the, the big fashion exhibition of the year. And this, the particular one that uh, is discussed in this, uh, in this documentary is um, its 2015 major exhibition called China Through the Looking Glass, Really, really fascinating insight into all of those kind of things like celebrity, the world of fashion. Anna Winter is always a compelling person to see on screen and to be, you know, to witness behind the scenes. But actually, the the bit around the lengths they go to to put these fantastic international exhibitions together um, is really interesting. And and the people that you meet, really human characters, and I, I highly recommend it. How about you, Jerry? Yes, this is going to sound like I'm uh, really on brand and plugged in, but it is it is the truth. I've been reading um, Escape by our very own uh, Marie Leconte. 
um, which is absolutely brilliant. It's all about kind of growing up on the internet. I think me and Marie are pretty much the same age and um, I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying it seems we're similarly nerdy as teenagers and uh, just like spent a lot of our time living online. And I'm, I haven't finished it yet. I'm about halfway through, but there's just been a fascinating bit where she talks about the difference between the internet now where it's seen by everyone as just an extension of your normal life compared to how it was when essentially I was a geeky 12, 13 year old where you had a completely separate life online. Um, You know, she uses the uh, well-known phrase for millennials of, you know, no one on the internet knows you're a dog. And that really was the case. Um, Whereas you can't, you can't do that anymore. Um, And uh, yeah, look, it's brilliant. Um, And that really isn't, isn't some kind of sponsored plug. It's uh, my genuine review. Lovely. How about you, Jasmine? So I've just started watching um, a show called Severance, which I don't know if anyone's seen it, but it's a sci-fi thriller, um, I believe, on Apple TV. Um, And it's basically about a team of office workers who have voluntarily elected for their memories and their overall consciousness to be surgically divided between their work and personal lives. The idea being that when I walk into this podcast studio, I'm one version of Yasmin, but when I go home, I'm in another and those two don't interact Mm. at all. Um, It's very Black Mirror-y. It's very creepy, um, but I'm a couple of episodes in, enjoying it so far. So I, I, it's yeah. very, very good. I can I can confirm. Um, and and I did a cognitive therapy and mindfulness course over the weekend, and feel much the better for it. I would recommend that sort of stuff to anyone listening. Um, it, it I left it with the words ringing in my ears. It's it's not a shame to ask for help. And actually, over the last week, it it sort of transformed my life by making me feel less guilty for needing to use a professional service to do X, Y, Z that I was struggling with. And it's just absolutely wonderful and just leave me more time for me. I hope Dominic Raab's listening. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thanks for joining me to Yasmin Sirhan. Thanks for having me. Jerry Scott. Thank you. And Hannah Fern. Thank you. We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. And if you're looking for another reason to support us on Patreon, sign up and you get access to our next Podmasters Question Time on Zoom this Thursday, 27th of April, exclusive to Patreon backers. Answering your question this time, the mysterious Roz Taylor. In the meantime, here's a theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. See you next time. Oh, though, Beth Now was presented by Alex Andreu with Hannah Fern, Yasmin Saran, and Jerry Scott. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, with production from Chris Jones, Kasia Domashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh, God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.